We have a uh, sort of running conflict. It's a low-grade conflict in our house. It's more of a disagreement, actually. But it has to do with the topic of spoilers. Of course, now with the existence of the Internet, you don't have to talk to your friend who has seen the movie or read the book to find out how it ends. You can, uh, you can read about it in a hundred different ways, and, and uh, you have to be careful not to uh, find out if you don't want to find out. And some of us in our family like to know where a story is going before they start the story. They, they want to know what it's going to be like. They want to know if it's going to be a happy ending. They want to know where the story is going. They want to know the punchline. want to know what the climax is going to be like. And, and others of us who are the right ones, by the way, <laughs> I'm just telling it like it is, okay? We believe we should let the storyteller tell the story, right? My kids are tired of hearing me say that. I think that the climax doesn't really make sense until we have experienced the story leading up to it. Thank you. I, I see some wise people of like-minded nature who also understand life and truths nodding along with me. Right? We, we, need, we need to have understood the story. We need to have been taken along through the story before we can understand and feel the real weight of the climax of the story. Well, folks, Resurrection Sunday is about the resurrection of Christ, of course, and in many ways it's the climax of the storyline of the Bible. There is more to come, but the, the central crux focuses on the resurrection of Christ. And so, if that's the climax, if that's, if that's such a high point, we need to understand the story that led up to it. We need to, to experience what the Bible says leads up to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so, to understand that story today, we're going to look at at two sons who are raised in the Bible. And so our first son that we're going to be talking about here is in Genesis chapter 22, and we're not really going to work in detail uh, through this story, but, uh, but I want to notice what we've already read, that, that God calls Abraham to take his son, Isaac, and this isn't just some son. As you recall the story of Abraham, he and and Sarah uh, have been trying to have children their whole lives, probably, their whole marriage, probably. Uh, but particularly, they've been promised from the time they, they were, well, he was 75 years old, which doesn't really work in today's calculations, probably didn't really work in their calculations, but was promised when he was 75 years old, you're going to have a son. And remember how long they had to wait before they got this son. They had to wait till he was 100 years old to get this son. And so, 25 years. I remember when we uh, were first married and were, were uh, beginning to have children, it seemed like forever. They were, you know, eventually ever, are we ever going to be able to have children? And, and we waited some time, you know, some months. Yeah. <laughs> right. And they waited for 25 years, receiving promise after promise from God and taking wrong turns and trying to do things their own way. But God calls Abraham here in chapter 22. And he says, he says, Abraham, remember the son that you've been waiting for and praying for, I've been promising you about for 25 years? Remember all that, uh, all that history 
represented in your son. And by the way, they just had the son in chapter 21. He said, all right, now the son's on the scene. Here's what I want you to do, Abraham. Take your son, Isaac, whom you love, your only son, the one I've made so many promises about. Take him, and I want you to present him as an offering to God. I want you to give him up. The amazing thing, that, that in itself is amazing, but, but if you look at Abraham's response, verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, got his stuff, gathered his son, and away he went. Abraham agrees. Abraham obeys God, and he, he departs on this journey with his son. And they, they travel for three days, and when they arrive at the location for the offering, then Abraham and his son leave behind the rest of the party, and they continue up the mountain together. And, and as they're climbing up the mountain together, Isaac is thinking to himself, all right, I see the wood to make the fire. I see the fire itself, and, and dad's carrying a knife for the sacrifice, but I don't see a lamb. I don't see anything to be offered. And so he mentions this to his father, and his, his father says an amazing uh, confession of faith in verse 8, where we see Abraham assuring Isaac. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Even as he's obeyed, he's already left home, he's already gotten to the point uh, where he's at the foot of the mountain where he's going to go up and he's going to offer the sacrifice there, and he's traveling up it with his son. Even at that point, he says, God will provide. We see at verse 9, they arrive at the actual location, at the actual place itself where they're going to sacrifice the offering. And, and so Abraham goes and he builds an altar. And that's how you sacrifice an offering is with an altar. He builds the, offer, uh, the, the, the altar and then he takes the wood and he piles the wood where it goes. And then he takes his son. Something no, apparent, no, no parent can imagine. And he, and he binds him. And he places him on top of the altar and on top of the wood to be the sacrifice. This is getting real. It was amazing that Abraham obeyed when God called him in the beginning. It was amazing when they arrived at the mountain and Abraham obeyed and left the rest of the party behind and took all the necessary things and headed up the mountain. It was amazing when he did each of these steps and it's particularly amazing when he places his son there and then he goes one step beyond that. It's not just placing his son upon the altar, but he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. Verse 10. Now we feel that. We don't understand it. Perhaps it's very, very challenging for us, but we feel all that is behind that. We, we're amazed that Abraham is able to do this. We're amazed that, that, uh, that this is all come about. But the, the question really is, why in the world would God tell Abraham to sacrifice his son? Throughout all of Scripture, human sacrifice of such a nature is abhorrent. Why would he want Abraham to sacrifice 
his own son. Maybe, maybe we've been wrong about God's character all along. Maybe Abraham only thought he knew God. Is, is Abraham's God some kind of bloodthirsty tribal deity? He's gone long enough without blood and he, he just needs human blood? Well, no. The answer to those very hard questions, and they are hard questions, is what we find there in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. This was a test. There are many points in the Bible where we rejoice that we get to read the Bible and that we are not there within it. And this is one of those points. This is one of those points where we get to have the eternal perspective. We get to have God's comments, as it were, upon what is happening. Abraham was in the thick of it. Abraham was right there in the midst of it, and Isaac was right there in the midst of it, not knowing. But we know. We get to understand that God was testing Abraham. And this, this has to be one of the most grueling, demanding tests anywhere in Scripture, certainly that any parent can imagine. This isn't the kind of test that you and I face in our lives. When we face difficulty, when we face hard questions, it's, it's not along these lines. This is the kind of test that is reserved for this man and this man only. So it's a very unique, it's a very special test. He's testing whether Abraham loves the gift more than the giver. Abraham and Sarah have waited all these years for this child. They've been promised for low these, well, 25 years before he's born at the beginning of the previous chapter. And they've invested so much in this child. But Abraham's life is, is about following God, not about having this child. I have children. There's nothing at all wrong with having children. We should have children. Abraham and Isaac uh, will each of them in their own turn have children. Abraham and Sarah have had Isaac. But the question is, what's uppermost? What is the, the, the point of your life? Abraham, is the point of your life this child that you now have? He now has a name and you know what he looks like. And you love him. He's a special, unique child. Is that the point of your life? Is that the ultimate? Or, Abraham, do you love God ultimately? That's the question. That's the test that is being put to Abraham. Couldn't you have just asked him? Don't, don't you wish? I bet Abraham wished. Just ask me, Lord. I'll tell you. I don't have to go through this whole grueling thing. Just, just ask me and I'll tell you. I, I love you more. God, I, I, you, you're, you're the ultimate. I understand my theology's in order that God is above man. And, and yeah, I've got, I've got the right answer. I've been to Sunday school. And the problem is, Abraham himself probably didn't know the answer. He knew the answer he ought to give. It's a little bit like when you get pulled over by a police officer 
which is something I try to avoid, generally. But when you get pulled over by a police officer, they don't just ask you, uh, do you have a legal driver's license to allow you to operate this vehicle? Right? They may ask you that. I don't know. I, don't, I haven't been pulled over all that often. But if, if they did just ask, do you have one, and you said, oh, yeah, sure, do they just say, okay, well, great. No, they want to verify it. They want to see it. They want to look at it. They want proof. They want to see the fact, not just your answer, because you know what the officer wants to hear. But they need to verify for themselves. Well, doesn't God know whether Abraham loves God more than he even loves his son? Well, of course God knows. And God could say it. And very often in Scripture, we, we have God's testimony alone, and God's testimony alone carries all the weight in the world. But in this instance, it goes beyond just God pointing and saying, Abraham, your faith is amazing. You really do love me more than you love your son. No, he puts it on display for you and me to look back at this story and say, yeah, it's not just that God said it. Abraham demonstrated it. I can see because I can see how Abraham responded to this test. That's the nature of the test. Will Abraham prioritize God or will he prioritize his precious son that he's waited so long for? There are a couple things that are amazing about this story to this point. The first of all is the severity of the test. That's just about as severe a test as I can imagine. And we see it this one time in Scripture. This is a unique situation. That's amazing. Secondly, it is mind-boggling to me that Abraham passes this test. What faith he had. That he actually really did value God uppermost, God ultimately, over any gift, however precious, that God had given him. Well, before we move on to uh, the next paragraph in our story here, what's at stake if, if Isaac dies? If Isaac, I, I stopped reading where I did on purpose, but if Isaac dies, what do we lose? What do Abraham and Sarah lose? Well, first of all, they lose their precious son, and that's incalculable. That's the first thing. Secondly, there have been promises made that are wrapped up in the life of this child, wrapped up in the future of this child from the very beginning of the Abraham story back in Genesis chapter 12. And all of those promises are at stake if Isaac is dead. Promises of further offspring through him. Promises of a land for those offspring to dwell in. Promises of blessing that will come through this offspring into every family of the earth, which is us. Those are the things that are at stake. All of the promises would be forfeit if Abraham's son is dead. So there's a lot at stake. Well, this is where the son's figurative rising comes in. Look at verse 11. 
Remember verse 10, he had reached out his hand, Abraham had, and taken the knife, and he was, he was prepared to do the unthinkable. He was, he was prepared to go to this extreme. But, by the way, that, that is often the most beautiful word in all of Scripture. But, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! And he said, here I am. I bet there was no dawdling in his response. You know, feel free to interrupt any time in this whole process. And so you can imagine that maybe the angel of the Lord didn't really even have the words out of his mouth yet, and Abraham's already, yes, I'm over here, over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. And by the way, this isn't just a little fear of God. He has demonstrated in the most extreme way possible that he fears God ultimately. He has this reverence for God, this submission to God that would, that would bring him to, to obey whatever God said. For now I know that you... Fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. God is saying to Abraham, you passed the test. I don't want you to kill your son. And by the way, he never wanted him to kill his son. This was a test. What will Abraham do? Abraham knew the Sunday school answer. Yeah, of course I value you, God, more than I do my son. Yeah, sure. That's easy. Ask me a hard question. Okay, Abraham, show it. And then Abraham shows it. And God says, now I see, now I know, now it is evident for all the world to see that you fear God. You have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Remember what we had read up in verse 8. God's, uh, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Well, here it is. It's a, this ram who's, who's caught in the, in the bushes uh, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. God provided the sacrifice. God provided the ram to be offered in the place of Isaac, for whom they had gone up the mountain to have a sacrifice. So what a, what a wonderful conclusion. It's almost a torture to pause before you read that section as, as you're in the agony of what Abraham is going through and what Isaac must be going through as you're, as you're going through all that. It's, it's, it's torturous. But then when you realize, when you see God's timely resolution of that whole thing, he says, now I see for certain. Now it is evident to all, Abraham, that you don't just talk a good talk. You really do fear God to that extent. Hebrews 11 comments on this, on this uh, section here and says, By faith Abraham, starting at verse 17 of Hebrews 11, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Listen to this. 
he considered, Abraham considered, that God was able even to raise from the dead, to raise his son Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This was like a resurrection. This wasn't an actual resurrection. Isaac was never put to death. God was never going to allow that. God is in control of all time. He's, he has all power. He's never taken off guard. He's never caught uh, by surprise. No one ever gets the drop on God ever. He's in control of all things. And so when the angel of the Lord spoke and said, Abraham, Abraham, it was at exactly the right moment. God, God was working in such a way that Isaac's life was never in danger. Though Isaac didn't know that. Abraham didn't know that. But this situation where Abraham receives Isaac back is like a resurrection of sorts. Isaac had gone through his near-death experience, and now they get to hug each other again and probably have some conversations later on <laughs> about what was that all about. It was as if Abraham had received Isaac back from the dead, which brings us to one more amazing aspect to this episode before we move on, and that's this. And we have to catch this. We have to catch this. As extreme as this test is, and it is extreme, it is perhaps the most extreme testing in the Bible. As extreme as this test is, listen, God isn't telling Abraham to do anything that he isn't prepared to do himself. The account of Abraham and Isaac prepares us for what will happen in the New Testament. This testing is of such a magnitude, and it's so potent, and it's, it's so memorable. It's meant to be brought back to mind. It's meant to be kept in our mind, and, and, and it'll stay in your mind, but it points us forward to what's going to happen in the New Testament when God's Son, Jesus, comes on the scene. And God, who instructed Abraham to offer his son, now his son, is on the scene. And with Jesus, we will see not a figurative rising, but a son's literal rising from the dead. Well, how, does, how does this story point us forward to Jesus? How does this story tell us about Christ? I mean, after all, this is Resurrection Sunday, right? This is, this is Easter. This is the day we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Well, we saw that figuratively, Isaac was raised from the dead, given back to his father from the brink of death. By the miraculous intervention of God, with Jesus, we're going to see something a little bit different. Jesus is the Son of God Himself. He's God the Son. He comes on the scene. He's born of a woman. He, he takes on human flesh. He becomes one of us. He becomes our brother, as it were. Comes on the scene, sent by God at exactly the right time in history for a purpose. And the reason, the purpose that he came into the world was to give up his life. We read in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, Son of Man meaning Jesus, and to give his life a ransom for many. Why did Jesus come on the scene? 
We might answer that in different ways, but one of the reasons, and a massive reason, is he came to give his life as a ransom for many. What's a ransom? A ransom is something you pay to to get someone perhaps out of prison or or out of slavery or captivity. A payment has to be made to, to make them free. Well, Jesus comes and he's going to make a payment. He's going to make a payment to free sinners, and the payment is going to be not some sum of money. It's not going to be some some act of sacrifice on his part. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. That was the purpose for which he came. The Bible says that our captor, we who were held captive, we who needed to be ransomed in that situation, our captor was sin. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's not a unique thing to a certain class of people or to a certain age or to a certain stage in our own lives. The Bible says all have sinned. The Bible says all sin. We read in Isaiah 53 that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We, we had... Uh, we, 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 we have this creator God, the one who made us, and we are his. He has complete authority and right in our lives to tell us what to do. And he loves us, and he takes care of us, and he provides for all we need. And what, and what do we do as a result? What do we do in that context where the perfect one who loves us perfectly is caring for us? What did mankind do? We go our own way. I don't want any of that for some reason. We follow after sin. That's what mankind has done. That's the way we are all born. And rather than devoting our lives to, to living in the joyful presence of this God and obeying what He says, instead we go our own way. We have turned everyone to His own way. Well, the Bible calls that sin. And the Bible says that the penalty for that, the payment that we deserve when we do that, is death, and not just physical death, not just this body dying. The payment that we deserve is to be separated from the, from the, the blessing and the loving hand of God forever. We call that hell, where we're separated from Him. And that's what we deserve. But Jesus came like, like the good shepherd to lay down His life in place of His sheep. You and I deserve that death. You and I have earned that a million times over. That's the death that we've earned. And Jesus came to give his own life, to lay down his life for the sheep. And just like God provided the ram in the thicket at just the right moment, when Isaac's life appeared to be over and Abraham was going to go through with the sacrifice at exactly that moment, at just that right moment, God provided the ram in the thicket who would be a substitute, one who would be brought in and and be sacrificed in place of Isaac. It's the same with you and me, folks. Jesus came to be that sacrifice. Jesus came in the fullness of time, when the time was just right. He came to take upon himself the penalty for our sins. He came to die. What other people serve a Lord who died for them? 
But the Christian message really isn't about uh, Christ coming in the world to be some kind of an example for us to emulate. There are aspects of that that are true. We can learn about self-sacrifice. We can, we can learn a million things from Jesus from his life as our example. But that's not ultimately why. That's not the final reason why. The Christian message is really about the Savior who came to live sinlessly where we have not, and then to die as a substitute in our place to take the penalty that we do deserve, that he takes it upon himself. And he bears that penalty all the way to death. So he came to die. He came to be killed, but he didn't come only to be killed, but to be killed and on the third day rise from the dead. He didn't just bear it in himself. He didn't just make some promises and then, and then sin is placed upon him and he's punished and we're left to wonder, was the payment enough? Was the payment satisfactory to God? The one man dying for the many? How can that be? If he remained dead, we would be left to wonder and question, and rightly so, whether God accepted his sacrifice or not. But Jesus was raised from the dead. He who, he who had all the sin of all these sinners placed upon him, and he who bore that penalty in his own body on the tree, to the point of death. Remember, all that sin now is associated with him. That becomes his sin. My sin becomes his sin. And so he, he's on the cross as if, as if he had done all the things I did. As if he had done all the things all of you did. He's the worst sinner ever. That's how he's counted in that moment. He did none of it himself. He's holy and righteous. And yet he takes it upon himself and he stands before God as if he were the worst sinner ever. And if he's put to death, and if he remains dead, the message to us is, well, he's still paying that penalty. He was clearly separated from God's loving hand, from God's hand of blessing. But that wasn't God's plan. That wasn't Jesus' plan. He came to, to be killed and to be raised on the third day. And so he is living even now. He is alive. He is risen. And so this is not a figurative rising. When we look at the story of Isaac, we can see that he almost died, that he was on the point of death, that Abraham ever, had every intention of killing him. Right? He had a brush with death, and receiving him back is, like, is like a, 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 almost like a resurrection. But with Jesus, we're not talking about a figurative resurrection. We're not talking about almost like a resurrection. We're not talking about a revival of Jesus' teaching in such a way that we might say in some, some mystical way that he's been raised from the dead. No, this is a man who was put to death on a cross who died, was buried, locked in the tomb, and on the third day rose from the dead, never to taste death again. Death no longer has 
dominion over him. And in fact, God received him back to himself and, and seated him at his own right hand, where he is right now, by the way, in his body, at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. And so when we think about Resurrection Sunday, we're talking about the climax of the story. And if we don't understand what went into it, then we won't understand why resurrection is such a big deal. We might, we might be tempted to think that, well, you know, Christians, they, uh, um, you know, they, they, they could, just couldn't deal with the fact that Jesus was dead, so they made up these stories. Or um, Jesus' teaching lived on, and so we could say that, that he lived on. Or, or somebody had a, had a dream somewhere and that Jesus was alive. And No, this, this is talking about an actual physical death and an actual physical and spiritual resurrection as well, so that Christ is alive now. And that only makes sense in light of all that went on before it, in light of our sin, in light of what our sin requires, that God, who loves us, could have left us in that place since we've rebelled against Him as a race and individually. He could have left us in that place, but He didn't. He could have let the knife fall. Just like Isaac in the place of the sacrifice. He could have let the knife fall. He could have allowed judgment to come upon us as we deserve. We're the ones who have done the crime. We should do the time as it were. But he wasn't satisfied with that. And so he sent his son to redeem sinners. He sent his only begotten Son, God the Son, comes on the scene, takes on flesh, becomes one of us to conquer sin, to conquer death. And in his whole life, I mean, you just think about this past week and the times you've been tempted to, uh, to do something you knew was wrong. I mean, you, you knew in your heart it was wrong. This wasn't you know, a, a, the fine print kind of problem. You know, you tore the mattress tag off or, you know, whatever. But we're talking about something that you knew was wrong, no question about it. And you were sorely tempted to do it. And perhaps you even did it. And that's just this week. Jesus faced temptation just like us. But he resisted always. He never even desired to do those things. He obeyed in, in thought, word, and deed, and, and even in desire. He obeys in our place. He perfectly honors God in everything he thought, said, and did. And then he goes to the cross and he takes the death that you and I deserve, standing in our place like that ram from the thicket, standing in Isaac's place. He goes to his death on the cross. He undertakes the death that, that you deserve, the death that you have earned, the death that is your wage. He takes it upon himself bears that to the point of his own death and if that was the end of Jesus story we would be of all people most to be pitied we had such hopes and they were all dashed they all came to nothing but God did indeed raise him from the dead and he is actually alive even now God accepted his payment as evidenced by the fact that he raised him back from the dead. Sin really has been defeated for you, Christian. Death has no claim on him. 
and Christian. To everyone who has faith in Christ, death has no claim on you. Now, our body is going to die. We have evidence of that. Unless, unless the Lord uh, returns soon, we will all face death. Our body is in a state of decline. Some of us recognize that more quickly than others. It's going to die, but that's just a physical death. The spiritual death is the real point. And that death, that spiritual death, that, that, that death that means being separated from, from every blessing of God, separated from the loving hand of God, being separated from Him in hell is spiritual death. But for the one who has faith in Christ, for the, for the child of God, that spiritual death has no more claim on you. Period. And so as we heard at the sunrise service this morning, we can face life differently. We understand life differently because we don't have all of our eggs in this basket. This is just the here and now. This is just a brief moment. And the older I get, the briefer that moment seems. But eternity goes on and on. Eternity is forever. And so we're at this we're at this juncture where we're looking at this resurrection account and we're now understanding what it really means that this Jesus did what he did for me and if you will put your faith in Christ if you will look at what Jesus has done recognize your own need for what Jesus has done and if you will believe he did that for you, that he lived righteously where you have not, and he did so for you, and that he died as a substitute on the cross in your place because you needed it, and that God raised him from the dead on the third day because you needed it, if you will believe he did that for you, then you will find peace with God. You will find that your penalty has been paid, that you have life in Him, that you now for the first time ever have peace with God, that you can, you can fully expect your eternity not to be a, a separation from God, but, but being in His presence and in His presence for blessing, in His loving presence. And when your physical body dies, you will be ushered immediately there in His presence where you most long to be, where you were created to be. And so, don't let this opportunity pass you by to consider the meaning of the climax of the story, why it is we celebrate the resurrection and why the resurrection is so important for you. Don't let this opportunity pass by. Instead, believe in Him alone for eternal life. And this will be true of you. Let's pray. Father, we have wrestled quickly with a very difficult story. But the ending of it is amazing. The ending where we understand that you were in charge and that you never intended Isaac's death. Instead, you always had a plan to provide the ram caught in the thicket as a substitute 
and we are encouraged about ourselves that we who deserve to be in that place of punishment, we have a substitute in Jesus. The righteous sacrifice who took the payment, the penalty, the death for my sin so that I don't have to, so that I instead could have life in Him because you raised Him from the dead. And so though the story is difficult and the story is painful, the truth is amazing and the truth is life-giving. The truth has given life to me and it's given life to many of us here. And, and the life that we experience now is a wonderful thing, but it pales in comparison to what it's going to be like when we put off this mortal body and we stand in your presence even as we talked about Gene Workman. What a blessing that you gave your son to be that ram caught in the thicket for sinners like me. Thank you for raising Jesus from the dead, that in him we have life. And so, Father, I pray for those here or those listening who who have maybe never thought about these things before, have never really considered why resurrection matters, have never really considered perhaps why Jesus really matters. And I pray that you would work in their hearts and bring a conviction of sin, of their own guilt before you, and that you would open their eyes to the, the beauty that is the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf that you confirm by raising him from the dead. I pray that you would draw many to yourself, even as we think about these two sons who are raised. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are going to be a, a, a couple of people up front who would love to pray with you. If you want to um, bring your concerns or, or uh, a request or just want to talk to someone, come forward and talk to them. They would uh, love to do that with you. Reminder, there is no service uh, tonight. And finally, He is risen. He is risen God bless you and you're dismissed.